from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Louise Mathias. Louise is the daughter of Dorothy Baker, a well-known historical figure in the Baha'i faith. Louise tells her story growing up as a Baha'i and tells us the details surrounding her mother's tragic death. Louise's daughter, Dorothy Freeman Gilstrap, wrote a book about Dorothy Baker called From Copper to Gold. I started the interview by asking Louise where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? So my memories really begin in Lima, Ohio. So you pronounce it Lima instead of Lima? Yes. My first clear memory of Lima must have been the, the night we arrived. We were unpacking some things, and my brother, you know, I was four and a half years old. That means he was just little, three and a quarter, you know, a little, he was quite young. And we were unpacking some doll dishes, and Bill picked one up and broke it somehow, dropped it, and it fell and broke, and I was very distraught. <laughs> and I ran to my father and said, Dad, Dad, Bill broke one of the dishes, and I don't have very many left. He said, don't worry about it. If you should break another one, I'll go out and get you a new, a new set of doll dishes. I said, oh, fine. And I can remember going back and say, Bill, break another dish. Go ahead, break one, break one. <laughs> oh, no, he told me. I couldn't do that. And I said, sure, break it, go on. Dad says he'll get us new ones if you break another one. I finally, he, he very reluctantly broke another doll dish. <laughs> and Dad, I ran to Dad, delighted. He Bill broke another one, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> Dad stood right up and said, well, I'll go get you some new ones. And he went out and got us some new doll dishes. I remember it had pictures of Br'er Rabbit and the whole mm. story of Br'er Rabbit. <laughs> I must have been a terrible older sister. <laughs> <laughs> now, your mother is Dorothy Baker. Unless you're a Baha'i, you really don't know who that is, but Dorothy Baker is a very well-known Baha'i, traveled around the world for the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could start by describing for me how it was that your mother became a Baha'i. Actually, my great-grandmother, my mother's grandmother, was one of the early Baha'is in, in the United States. She became a Baha'i. Uh, we know it was probably around 1898 and maybe a little earlier than that. But she became a Baha'i because when she was a young woman, she had been uh, very, very active in her church. And there's some wonderful stories about, about uh, Grandma Beecher. They, uh, the Baha'is all called her Mother Beecher. They said she was like a mother to the whole... American Baha'i community. When she was, oh, almost 60 years old, she met met a Baha'i in New York and became a Baha'i very shortly after that and taught her granddaughter 
her son and, and daughter-in-law. They, they became Baha'is many, many, many years later, but my mother was very deeply touched. And when she was 13 years old, Grandma took her to uh, hear Abdul Baha, the son of the founder of Baha'i Faith, who was visiting in America for several months. And she was so, so touched by what he said and so interested that she immediately became a Baha'i. Uh, my mother immediately became a Baha'i at that time. She used to take care of the children when the Baha'is got together, you know, and t- she'd tell them stories and things so that the other people could get with whatever they were studying. And about 1928, a grandma preacher, my great-grandmother, uh, lived, came to live with us in the last four years of her life. And during those four years, my mother really wanted to study what the Baha'i faith, and she would study with her grandmother, mainly because in 1929, she found that she had tuberculosis, and she had a lump on her left breast that she never even told the doctor about. And she felt certain she was going to die. And she went to the Baha'i National Convention in Chicago that year and had a very remarkable experience when when she suddenly realized she did not want to leave this world without having rendered some great service to this faith. And she came back to Lima from then and began to try to find a way that she could become a, an active Baha'i. After my great-grandmother died, one day, uh, one of my father's employees, he had a, a, a wholesale bakery in Lima, and one of his empo- two of his employees came to him and said, Frank, we're members of Unity, and we're studying a comparative religion. We know you have something different. Your faith is something different. Could you tell us about it? And he said, well, wouldn't you like to come to our house on Sunday evening? And I'll ask my wife to tell you. I think she could tell you about it better than I could. And Mother started studying at that point. She spent 40 hours that week, she said, studying how to give a one-hour talk, basic enough, comprehensive enough, <laughs> that could get at the, some of the fundamentals of the Baha'i faith over. And the people came, six or seven people. It was a very small group of unity at that time in Lima. Mother gave the talk, and they said, oh, this is much better than what we've been studying. Could you tell us more? So she spent another 40 hours preparing another talk for the following week, and this whole group of, of the members of Unity invited their friends. I think there were about 20 people who, the following April, all wanted to become Baha'is, and that was the beginning of the Baha'i community of Lima, Ohio. Now, how old were you at that time? 1932, I was 10 years old. And what happened to her lump in her breast? It was resorbed, it disappeared. The tuberculosis thing was in, encapsulated, as I recall they called it. And mm-hmm. She never had any further trouble with it. But it kick-started her in getting more active in the Baha'i faith? Yeah, she come, came home from that Baha'i convention in 1929 absolutely determined mm-hmm. that she was going to be an active Baha'i. And she tried so hard. I know my father went to a baker's convention in Columbus, Ohio, about 90 miles away. And Mother went along with him because there were a couple of Baha'is living in, you know, there were not that many Baha'is in America at that time. They had what they called a fireside, you know, these two Baha'is in Columbus invited some of their friends in, and Mother gave a little talk about the Baha'i faith, and that really was the beginning of the Baha'i activity in Columbus, Ohio. That was 1930. And when Grandma died in 1932 in the fall, 
it was within a month after Grandma's passing that these two employees of Dad's asked him about the Baha'i faith. Now, what was it like for you being raised as a Baha'i? We all called my mother Muzz, M-U-Z-Z, because my older half-brother and half-sister from my father's first marriage, he was a widower when he and mother met, called her Muzz for some reason, so we did too. <laughs> Muzz would tell us stories about Abu Baha, stories about Baha'u'llah, talk about the Baha'i teachings, taught us prayers, and it was always a very cozy, lovely time with Muzz. We just loved it when she would tell us about the Baha'i faith. But we were sent to the, the Lutheran Sunday School because my father had grown up as a Lutheran. And I, I can remember, it was a perfectly fine Sunday school, but we would sing hymns, and one of the hymns was Onward Christian Soldiers. You know how literal little kids are. Mm-hmm. I took this absolutely literally. I had this picture of these Christians were marching as to war, you know, with their rifles at the ready, saying, you become a Christian or I'm going to shoot you, you know, uh, totally false. Not really, because that song, it reflected the whole concept of the Crusades. The response to this yeah. was just horror. <laughs> oh, that's terrible, that's awful. I came home from Sunday school one Sunday and said, I will never sing on with Christian soldiers again as long as I live. Dad started to laugh, and he said, well, what do you plan to do about it? And I said, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I will not sing that again. And they said, well, would you like to go to another Sunday school? And I said, oh, yes, could I? Mother and Dad both said, of course, you can go to any Sunday school. You have to go to Sunday school, but you can go to any Sunday school you choose. And I said, wow, boy, none of my friends get to choose that. And they said, well, you're a Baha'i child. You can choose to go to any Sunday school you'd like to go to. When I announced this to my class the next day, they all said, oh, come to my Sunday school. No, come to mine, you know. Well, I was the queen bee. <laughs> I, I went to all, every Sunday school I was invited to, and I, I enjoyed it. You know, it was, they were all pretty much alike. You know, they were all mostly Protestant because that's what the churches were. I went to Catholic Mass, and I went to the Catholic Sunday school. I went to the Jewish synagogue. But I finally said, Mus, can't we have a Baha'i Sunday school? She said, yes, I think it's time we had a Baha'i Sunday school. So these dear ladies who were brand new Baha'is, you know, we would meet on Sunday morning in, in, in somebody's home. Most of the children who were going there were not from Baha'i parents. Uh, they were simply parents who wanted their children to have a kind of broader idea of religion and thought this was, this was a place where they would get it. So we met, we'd sing songs, and we'd learn prayers, and we would memorize quotations from the Bible and from the Baha'i writings, and then we would break up to class. Well, these dear ladies, these brand-new Baha'is, had gone to some store downtown, and they'd got uh, some square white gift boxes in different sizes so they could build a pyramid of them. And we started with the bottom box. They said, now we'll write on this the name of someone we think was a prophet of God, and that was Adam. You know, we don't know much about him. We really just have myths and stories about Adam. But he lived in the in Mesopotamian Valley about, about 3000 B.C., and his main teaching was conscience. They said, you are humans, you have choices. If you kill, it's murder. It's not like an animal killing another animal, because a human has a choice, and this is a sin. And then we talked about that for a few weeks, and then the next one we talked about was Noah. Then his central teaching was obedience. 
that God will tell you what to do, and if you obey him, you're fine. And we talked about that for a few weeks, and then next, of course, came Abraham, and he said that faith is, his teaching was that faith is a two-way street. You sign a covenant with God. And then from after that, we had Moses, and we talked about some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, but Moses was the lawgiver, and he established a society that grew out of his teachings. It was not just for the individual, it was for the whole social structure. And then after that, with the time of Jesus and Christ and that his flowering of the gift of salvation and individual love, that the individual is important to God. And then the time of Muhammad, who had taught both that Jesus was the Spirit of God and that if you were his follower of Muhammad, you had to accept Christ as the Spirit of God. And that his teachings were both social and for the individual and then for the modern day, with the Bob, who is the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, and Baha'u'llah's teachings for a new age, the fulfillment of prophecy of the past, so that he said, these were not his words, it's my words, that religion is like the chapters of one book, that this is the, the religion of God, and the people of these various religions, of Buddhism, of Hinduism, of Zoroastrian, of Judaism, Christianity, of Islam, and of the Baha'i faith, of course, too, are like the different chapters of one book. You go way back to the first one at the time of, of Adam is the first one we know about, and that the, these are the, all the chapters have been built up to the culmination that we see today in the teachings of Baha'u'llah when he says this is the time of fulfillment. Actually, Louise, that's a beautiful description of the concept of progressive revelation in the Baha'i faith. Can you describe for me what you did after high school? Well, when I was in high school, I was not very well for a few years there, and I had to be in a different climate and get me out of this wet, <laughs> Middle Western climate. I went to school in El Paso, Texas, to a girls' school for three years. And the second year I was there, there was a trip down to Mexico City uh, that was sponsored by the Texas College of Mines. It's part of the University of Texas system now. At that time, it was independent. If we were making good grades, we could get a week off or two weeks off, I think it was, and go to Mexico City. And I fell in love with Latin America. And from that point on, I have to learn how to make a living living in Latin America because I've determined I'm going to go there. And my mother said, oh, the Baha'is have been asked to go down and establish a Baha'i faith in Latin America. You could take that as part of what you're doing. So indeed, I gave up college and went to a secretarial school called Scudder School in New York City. And I went there for two years because my father said, you're not going to Latin America by yourself when you're 19 years old. You have to have at least one more year under your belt. So I was 20 years old and finished those two-year course, went off to Bogota, Colombia, and got a job with Shell Oil Company. Really, it was just, oh, it was a fulfillment of my dreams. <laughs> very difficult in many ways. Very, very exciting. I just, I've always been grateful that my father would let me do that. And how long were you in Bogota? I was in Bogota for about a year and a half. A friend of mine had already gone down the year before, so I moved into her apartment. But in the meantime, she had met an American newspaper man and had got married and was pregnant was on her way back to the States because her husband said, you know, Bogota is so high that women who have not grown up at that altitude often miscarry. 
and they have all kinds of difficulties. I want you back in the States to have our baby. So she left. I was pretty unprepared for getting down there. When I arrived there on January 1st, 1943, and moved into a hotel, the Americans there were still laughing about an American couple who had arrived just a few weeks ahead of me. The husband was with some American company working down there, and they were staying in this same hotel where I was. And the husband, one morning, kissed his wife goodbye and said, I'm off to work. I'll just lock the door and let you sleep for a while. I guess he turned in the key at the desk, but anyway, he went off to work. And when the young wife woke up an hour or so later, showered and got dressed and then checked the door and it was locked and she couldn't get out, so she phoned down to the desk and said, will somebody come and unlock the door, please? My husband's gone off with the key. And they said, oh, yes, madam, right away. And nothing happened. And a half hour later, she phoned down and said, nobody has arrived to let me out. Please send somebody up there and unlock the door. I have to get out of here. I haven't had breakfast. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. We'll send someone right away. And still nothing happened. Well, finally, when this happened the third time, the young woman phoned her husband's office and said, listen, do something. Nobody is unlocking the door, and I can't get out of this room. So he hurried home and unlocked the door and went down and complained at the desk and said, why did you leave my wife locked in the room there? And they said, oh, senor, we wouldn't think of letting her out of the room if you wanted to have her locked there. (laughs) (laughs) So I arrived in this very, very old-fashioned town steeped in Spanish tradition. One day I was walking down the street. A young man was following me, and at that time, of course, this was 65 years ago, a young woman who was not just deathly ugly, these young men would follow the, the young woman, you know, and make uh, remarks to her, you know. And this, this young man was saying, Oh, senorita, I wish you were just a little doll just two inches home and I could take you home and keep you on my mother's piano. <laughs> Finally, I got tired of all of this, and I went up to a policeman. And I said, Senor, this young man has been following me. And the policeman swept his hat off his head, put it over his heart, and said, Oh, senorita. If I were not on duty, I would follow you, too. <laughs> I didn't know whether to be amused or, or horrified <laughs> or by some I ran into. <laughs> so what were the circumstances that had you leave Bogota? I got sick. I had to come back to the States. I, you know, my weight went down. I think I weighed 102 by the time I left. And I'm five foot seven, so you can imagine mm. how skinny I was. So you went back to Lima and recuperated? Yes, and I was in the States for several months. It was very difficult during World War II. There were not that many roads built through Colombia, and it was difficult. You couldn't reach a lot of places except by boat down a river or flying. He would send a Baha'i book and a letter to different groups who were studying spiritual things, to the theosophists and to any groups such as that, that he thought might be interested, and got answers from a number of people around the country, and established uh, groups of Baha'is who had never seen a Baha'i. He hadn't met them, and they knew each other only through correspondence. And one of them, about nine or ten people, became Baha'is. The Baha'is have an election. You know, we don't have any clergy. We elect a group of nine people where there are nine or more adult Baha'is, they constitute what we call the local spiritual assembly, and they direct the affairs of the Baha'i community for a year. We have the election annually. Well, he wrote to this group and said, I haven't heard from you recently. Are you going to reestablish your Baha'i assembly? And he got a letter back from 
one of the Baha'is who said, yes, we're so glad we heard from you. We will immediately get busy. We had not planned on trying to reestablish our assembly because, you know, there were only nine of us last year and four of us have died in this year. Mm. You do realize that this is the leper colony. Oh, my gosh. You'd have these very unusual experiences of teaching the Baha'i faith in those countries where it had not existed. These were among the first Baha'i communities. Of course, now there are tens of thousands of Baha'is all over Latin America. There are a lot of Baha'is. So what happened after you recuperated? Oh, after I recuperated, I went to the University of Chicago. That was an interesting experience, too, in, in the middle of World War II. I, I went there. I thought, well, I really should get back and finish college. And I went to the administration there, and they accepted me. I was all was well. I said, I would like very much to live in an international house. And they said, well, for what reason? You know, that's really for foreign students and American students who are much involved in Latin America. I said, well, I'm just back from Latin America. I lived there for a year and a half, and I'm much interested. My Spanish is getting better. It's not awfully good yet. They said, oh, well, what took you to Latin America? And I said, well, because I was asked to help out with establishing these first Baha'i communities and wherever I went. And the director of International House said, oh, I've heard of the Baha'i faith. That's so interesting. Yes, we'd like to have you as a resident here. So I, I was in International House and had a fascinating time. They were working on the quarter system, so I was just there for three months. And then I thought, I can finish my college education after the war. Right now, there are things going on in Latin America. I'd like to get back there. And so I contacted what they called the Inter-America Committee, the uh, Baha'i Committee that oversaw Baha'is going down there. And I said, oh, where could I be used? I'd love to go back there. And they said, oh, could you stop off in the Dominican Republic? Because there were various times two different people who were in the Dominican Republic rather briefly. And there's a group of people who would very much like to know more about the Baha'i faith and could you stop there for a couple of months on your way down to Caracas, Venezuela, where we'd like you to go and where I could, would be able to get a job easily? And so I did. I stopped off in the Dominican Republic. That was exceedingly interesting. There was a young woman there who worked in a pharmacy. Every one of the employees and her boss, they were all couldn't wait to hear about the Baha'i faith. Very little translated into Spanish at that time. There was one book called Baha'u'llah and the New Era, which we have in English, and that had been translated in Argentina. The people said, oh, oh, this is terrible. This is so, such Ar Argentine Spanish. It's not good <laughs> Spanish at all. Anyway, we were stuck with that, and I tried to translate a few other things that I just typed up with some carbon copies. You know, we had so few Baha'is in the United States, there was nobody that could come. Finally found somebody in Costa Rica who could come over and take my place. And I went on to Caracas, Venezuela, and got a job with Venezuelan Atlantic Refining Company. When I decided to go to secretarial school, it was the best idea I could have had, because at that time, anyone who spoke Spanish could get a job anywhere in some American company. It was no problem at all. So tell me about your experience in Caracas. My mother had been in Venezuela. She came down to Bogota to see me and then flew over to Venezuela and had the names of a few people who had been contacted by a Baha'i couple who had lived there a few years earlier and contacted them and through them got in touch with 
the Union of American Women, which was this enormously popular international group, a women's association all through Latin America. And when she was talking to them, she said, you know, uh, one of the very first feminists of the modern world was a Persian woman called Coratelaine, and told about Coratelaine's life and that how she'd been martyred. As soon as she mentioned the name Coratelaine, the women said, oh, we know about her. She was a very famous poetess. We've heard the translations of one or two of her poems. She was a Baha'i, and my mother said, not a Baha'i. She was a follower of the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, you know, like John the Baptist announced the coming of Jesus, that he would soon appear, that Christ would appear. So the Bab was telling the people of Persia, this great teacher will soon appear, and you must be prepared for him. And she became his follower. And then when she was killed, it was hard to say whether it was because she was a Babi, a follower of the Bab. The Bab means the gate. He said, I am the gate to the new age. Uh, this great teacher is going to appear. So his followers were called Babis. Whether she was killed as a Babi or as a feminist, <laughs> it was a combination of the two. And she was strangled and thrown into a well by the army officer who was told to execute this woman, and he did. And her last words were, said, you can kill me whenever you wish, but you can never stop the emancipation of women. So that year I really, besides working for an oil company and falling in love and <laughs> the, mm. all the rest of the things one would expect of a 22-year-old woman, I've always been grateful that I had that experience. But again, my health was going down the drain, and my parents said, you better come home before you get as sick as you were before. was home for several months and helped my mother, who was, by that time, she was chairman of the Inter-America Committee. So I said, I'll be your secretary, and I was the recording secretary for that committee, and rather than going out and get a job, I did that. It was pretty much a full-time job. And then after several months, the war, war was finished, the Baha'is were asked to go to Europe. And my mother was asked to go and speak at 10 different countries. Shoghi Effendi, who was the head of the Baha'i faith at that time, said, I want you to go. It should be we're very well prepared ahead of time so that there will be a lot of publicity about your coming. So she made this trip through 10 different countries. Shoghi Effendi asked me to go to either Spain or Portugal. And I wrote and said, I would prefer to go to Portugal. Would that be all right? And he said, yes. So I went to Portugal, and I had a letter from Shoghi Effendi's Canadian wife saying, I have an old friend in Portugal who is one of the few gentlemen left in the world. He's this wonderful man that I met when I was in Germany, and he's in Portugal now living there. Would you please look him up? So when I got there, I was very self-confident, but I had a very strange feeling about looking up this man. I wanted my mommy there before I was going to meet him. So I waited until she arrived when she was finishing her journey. I met her in Spain, and then we came down to Portugal. Getting into Spain to meet my mother was an interesting thing. After the war, the Spaniards were so afraid there was some communist was going to set foot in Spain. When I went in to ask for a visa from the Spanish consulate in Lisbon, where I was living. They said, oh, can you give us the names of two people who know you, or who are Spanish citizens? And I said, oh, no, but I'll give you plenty of names when I come back, because I'm sure I'm going to meet a lot of people there. No, that wouldn't do. Well, finally, I persuaded them. I really was very innocent. I was not a communist. I just wanted to go up and meet my mother there and meet some of her friends and my American friend, 
Virginia Orbison, who was living there. Well, then they finally gave up and said, all right, they'd cable Madrid. And I got my visa and went up and met my mother and came back to Lisbon. Mm-hmm. Well, when we got there, she said, had I looked up this friend, of Shoggy Effendi's wife, I said, no, I haven't. I was waiting for you to get here. She said, oh, but you were asked to look him up. You must do that right away. So I went and phoned her and said, can we meet that Sunday evening? He was going out of town for the weekend. He said, yes, where should I meet you? And I said, how about the American Club? There was a long silence. He said, I'm not sure I'd be welcome at the American Club. You know that I'm German. And I said, I'm the only American who has ever set foot in there. That's just the name of the club. So we met there on Sunday evening, and that was Hubert Matthias. I met him. He certainly came well recommended. <laughs> I took one look at him and thought, this is the man I've been waiting for. <laughs> mm. I think we were married a couple of days less than three months after we met. And we were married for over 50 years until he died here in Arlington a few years ago. I was very lucky in my marriage. I think I've been very lucky in everything. I sometimes look back and think, how did I get so lucky? Did you stay in Portugal after you got married? Oh, yeah. Hubert was in business there, and I was working for General Electric. He got a job there, and then we both left General Electric, and he went into business for himself then, Mm -hmm. importing, and he had developed a fire brick heating dome that they could use on what they called primus stoves, a little pressure cooker that burned kerosene and used throughout all of Portugal. Everybody had one or two of those. And the houses at that time in the late 40s and early 1950s didn't have any heat, and it can get pretty darn cold in Portugal in in winter around Lisbon and north of Lisbon. The rainy season, it was cold and wet, and there was lots of tuberculosis and lots of pneumonia, so this little heating unit was very inexpensive, was sold all over Portugal. It was a great success. And then, of course, by the 1950s, people began building houses with central heating, which had not existed in Portugal. Mm -hmm. When we built our house, we had two fireplaces, one in the living room, one in the corner of our bedroom. And, of course, we were cooking on a wood stove in the kitchen. There was plenty of electricity in town, but we were out beyond the limits where electricity had reached. My father used to joke when he came over, he said, my goodness, our daughter Dodie was born by then. You're camping out in luxury, which was pretty well described it. Now, how long did you live in Portugal? Oh, I lived there for more than five and a half years. No health problems in Portugal. (laughs) And what were the reasons that caused you to leave? Well, uh, Hubert said that he didn't want uh, our daughter growing up in Portugal. He said, Portugal is wonderful. I love the Portuguese people. But by the time she is grown up, Who are the men she's going to meet? She's going to meet Latin men. Their ideas of marriage are not our ideas of marriage. And I would like her to live in a place and grow up in a place that has a little more open attitudes, where she will have a chance to meet a lot of people of different backgrounds and different nationalities and different cultures. And I think she'd be better off growing up in America or in some other European country, but he said, I I would like very much to go to America. I've always wanted to live there. And we applied for an American visa for him, and he got it, and we came. Uh, When we came back to America, he had his doctorate in law and political science, but he had been a lawyer, an international lawyer, and he didn't have any background in American law. 
He had worked for General Motors in Portugal. He was in charge of their warranty work through Portugal and Spain, North Africa, France, and England. He had to work in Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, and used his German to some extent, but mostly was his other languages. When we got to States, because he'd been working for General Motors over there, he applied for a job with General Motors, and he worked for GMAC. He was in training up in Flint. It quickly became apparent that he, he and an, a large American corporation were not going to hit it off very well. Wow. I think somebody came to Flint and said, oh, we're going to be building cars with this new material. It's composite it's plastic, and it doesn't burn. So they passed out little bits and pieces of it, and Hubert turned to his neighbor and said, do you smoke? And the man said, yes. He said, do you have a lighter? And he said, yes, could I borrow it? And he held the lighter under this, and it did not flame. But it smoldered in lots of black smoke. <laughs> and I think that was a kind of a typical uh, sort of thing he might have done. He, he said, I don't think I want to be with General Motors in, in America. I think it's too large a corporation. There's going to be a lot of conflict. So he left General Motors at the Baha'i National Convention that spring. We met a woman from Birmingham, Alabama. We had been living in Birmingham, Michigan when he was with General Motors. We said we got the right city, the wrong state. So we moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and he worked with a company that sold. I'm having a senior moment here. <laughs> 86, it happens every now and then. Not the individual shares of stock, but, you know, a composite. A you know. oh, mutual fund? Mutual funds. Thank you so much. No problem. <laughs> I own a couple of mutual funds. You'd think I'd be able to think of the word. Anyway, he sold mutual funds, and he would set up a retirement programs for people, and he loved it. He had such fun. He said, I love this. But he finally decided, he said, I don't think I want to stay in Birmingham, Alabama, in the Deep South in the 1950s. He said, I should be teaching. And suddenly the penny dropped. You know, his English had improved greatly over the years. He said, I should be teaching, and what could I teach? He first thought, well, I could teach German. And then he realized, no, yeah, I took my Ph.D. in law and the political science. They called it sciences of the state. He said, that translates to political science. That's what I should be teaching. So he applied to uh, a lot of different colleges and universities, and he got the proposals from temporary basis, you know, when somebody was on a sabbatical or they needed somebody who was doing half administrative work and you'd get to teach a couple of courses and he said he was not interested in either of those and then he got a letter from what was then called Arlington State College here in Arlington, Texas asking him to come for an interview and he did and he was hired and we moved out here to Arlington, Texas and we've been here ever since wow. and it has been wonderful by that time our daughter was 8 years old it was a marvelous place to raise a child. It was great for Hubert. He didn't want to stay in selling mutual funds, and he had been asked to become a partner in a, a brokerage firm, and he said he didn't think he wanted to spend his whole life just doing money things. That didn't seem what he wanted to give his major effort to. He wanted to do something that was surface-oriented. Now, I want to change the subject and go back to your mother again. Yes. Your mother, Dorothy Baker, she died unexpectedly, and I'd like you to describe what happened. She certainly did, yeah. You know, when I was growing up as a child, she was at home. I think if I looked through the whole world, I could not have found more ideal parents than I had. My mom and dad, they were very different from each other. 
to my members, a teenager once saying to them, this isn't a marriage, this is a mutual admiration society. You two are just so cute together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they laughed. I'd come home and find him sitting on the couch and Dad to have his arm around Mother and they just looked so cozy there. And they were marvelous parents. My mother was not big on discipline per se, but she certainly kept us in line, you know, within reason. I think she was trying to develop a conscience in us that we would be self-correcting. I remember I, I must have been seven or eight years old. We got a big box of candy for Christmas. And Mother said, no, 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 don't eat any till after dinner. Well, I was just so tempted. I took one tiny little pea-sized yellow candy and popped it in my mouth. And my mother said, did you eat some candy? And I said, no. She said, oh, good, good. And she put the candy up. I could hardly eat dinner. I was so horrified that I had lied to my mother. Mother kept saying, are you sick? And I said, no, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. At bedtime, I said some prayers. How could I be praying and saying some prayers when I had lied to my mother? I finally she kissed me and started out like, Muz, Muz, come back, come back. I did, I did. She said, you did what? I said, I ate some. She said, what did you eat? And I said, I ate one of those candies and I told you I didn't. <laughs> she put her arms around me and said, oh, you're so brave. Oh, thank you so much for telling the truth. Aren't you brave and wonderful? And then, you know, God's going to forgive you. You, I know you'll never do that again. Well, I didn't either. <laughs> I can't ever remember telling an untruth to my mother. Mm. I think the worst I've done is if somebody said, you like this hat? And I'd say, yes, <laughs> and I thought it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing beyond My mother. Mother was this wonderful mother. And when Bill and I were in our teens and we were both away at school, she started, tra- well, she started a little before that doing some Baha'i teaching work around Ohio. And she would say, now I'm going to be away for the weekend, and there are some children there that you'd like. And Louise, it's your turn to come with me, or Bill, it's your turn to come with me. So when we, we would accompany her on these weekend trips, and it was just a special time. And whoever was staying home had a special time with Dad, you know. Those weekends were wonderful. We didn't feel deprived by her Baha'i service. Then when we were away at school later, then she was elected to the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States and Canada. And six times a year she would go to their meetings. She'd be several days away at home, but you know, except in summer we weren't even there. We never felt deprived by her, her service as a Baha'i. And my father, bless his heart, my brother Bill, who was a year and a half younger than I am, said he could remember he must have been about 10 years old and he was sitting in our breakfast room with Dad at night and they were eating crackers and cheese and drinking Coca-Cola and stuff and then talking. They were talking about Miles and Dad said to Bill, said, you know, the work your mother's doing is very important. Neither she nor I want her to give her just her gray hairs or in her later years to this service. This is very important. She'll be remembered a hundred years from now for the work she's doing. So he backed her 100% in, in all of her Baha'i service. Of course, when I went trotting off to South America. She came down to visit me and then went on over to Venezuela, as I told you. And then they both came down when I was in Venezuela. And that was a wonderful trip. A lot of interesting things, but I don't think you're interested in them for a radio program. Well, uh, why do you say that? I fell in love and I was engaged to be married and they mm. came down expecting a wedding. Mm. And the young man's mother came down 
I think she was embarrassed that I had a religion that was not mm. run-of-the-mill. And she said, well, why do you have to be a Baha'i? Why can't you just carry baskets to the poor at Christmas time or something? <laughs> I can remember her asking mm. me that. And I said, well, it goes a little deeper than that. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, I, I don't like the idea that, that my son is marrying somebody who has different ideas. And I said, well, Bill, do you feel that way? And he said, well, yes, I do. I said, well, what do you want to do about it? He said, well, can't you be an Episcopalian? Because uh, that happened to be, you know, what he, he had grown up with. And I said, no, I can't, because that's like you're asking a Christian, can you excuse me, give up your belief in Christ? You know, or asking a, a Muslim, why can't you be a Christian or a Jew, give up your belief in Muhammad? I said, you're asking me to give up what I believe, and this is, makes me what I am. Are you sure this is what you want? And he said, yes, I'm sure. And I said, well, then I think that I can't marry you. I said, you know, you're asking me to, to change who I am and change all the fundamentals of what makes me what I am. And I can't do that. So I broke the engagement. It was very traumatic. Anyway, my mother was the first woman chairman of the Baha'i National Assembly of the United States in Canada. She was a speaker who inspired everyone. My mother then talked to Dad and said, now, when you retire, let's do something different. Let's Let's go be Baha'i pioneers someplace where that means, you know, we have, we have no clergy, as I said. The Baha'is would go out and establish themselves somewhere else and start a, a Baha'i community until a local assembly was formed, and then the community was self-supporting, did its own thing. And Dad said, oh, I would love to do that. That sounds so interesting. The two of them talked it over and got out maps and looked around and said, how about an island in the Caribbean, one of these English islands? So they picked the island of Grenada. They were planning to go down, and Mother was asked to represent the National Spiritual Assembly in four intercontinental conferences that were being held in 1952 and 53. And last of them was the one in India, in New Delhi. And she went there. She was clearly not well. People who told me said, she talked to me and said, oh, Frank and I have been blessed. We're going to the island of Grenada. We'll be the first Baha'is there. We'll buy a house. And it's so exciting. And then on the way home, she was asked by Shoghi Effendi to go to many centers all through north-central India. And she went to these villages accompanied by Indian Baha'is. And she met Maharani. She sent us pictures of herself in saris at, at this, this beautiful palace where she was visiting. Actually, years later, Maharani, I think, had, I don't know if she, she was still living, but there was a very large Baha'i conference held in that palace years later. On the way home, she stopped in Karachi, which is now Pakistan. She talked there for 24 hours. She talked to the theosophists, to the Baha'is, and governmental groups. She was supposed to stop in England on her way home. At that time, you had to have a visa for Americans couldn't go even to England without a visa. And she was waiting in the airport. They put a room aside for her because there were about 150 people, newspaper reporters. I don't think they had television at that time, radio reporters, government officials, all these people wanted to talk to her. And she didn't have her passport. Somebody had taken her passport to the British consulate and came back with it after they had called the plane and said, I got it, I got it. 
she got the visa to enter England, and she got on the plane. On the plane, she wrote a report of all the work she'd done in India, and in Beirut, she mailed it to Shoghi Effendi. And in Rome, she mailed off a home movie she had made of her trip through India. And she had talked at colleges and, and universities and girls' schools and many places all through India and had contacted many government officials. And then in Rome, she mailed her final reports and took off from Rome. And the pilot was talking to the Rome airport. And about 20 minutes after they had left the airport, the pilot's voice was cut off in the middle of a word. And they didn't, didn't know what was wrong. They thought it was probably just a problem with the radio. You know, they didn't really know there was anything very serious. And they were not sure until hours later what had happened. The plane had been flying over close to Elba. It passed Elba. And there was a flash in the sky. A number of fishermen out from the island of Elba saw the flash and then saw debris falling through the air coming into the sea. And several fishing boats went out and were gathering up bodies of people and trying to recover bits of luggage and things that were floating in the water. The plane itself had sunk very rapidly. And then they came ashore with these things. I was in Lima. We were living at that time in Birmingham, Michigan. We hadn't been in the States very long. And that morning I said, let's go to Lima. We have things we need to pick up. So we had driven down to Lima, Ohio. And that night I got a call from a friend of mine in Wilmette, Illinois, it's the Baha'i National Headquarters there. And he said, have you heard the news? And I said, what news? He said, about the accident. I said, I haven't heard of any accident. What's wrong? He said, a plane has disappeared, and we think it was the plane your mother was on. They think that it's down in the Mediterranean somewhere. And I said, no, today's January 10th. No, no, she was supposed to be in England two days ago. I'm sorry there was an accident, but mother's okay. Don't worry about it. And, of course, when I woke up in the morning, as I woke up, I knew that she had been on that plane. And I went into town. I we were out on a farm that my father had bought. And we went into town. I said, the Baha'is are going to get this news, and they're going to be terribly distraught. And I was not. I blocked it out, you know. I was not mm-hmm. going to accept it as yet, though I knew perfectly well she had died. So I was able to comfort all the Baha'is who came in, and they were weeping and very upset. My father and grandmother were driving from Lima down to Florida. The original plan had been that Mother would come home and they would leave from there to drive to Florida and fly down to Grenada. But because she was kept so much longer in India, they were in correspondence. You know, the letters, the airmail letters were pretty quickly delivered. So they had planned to meet first in New York when she was still delayed. They said, we'll meet in Miami. Still delayed, well, we'll meet in, in Jamaica or in Trinidad or if, if if we can't meet up there, we'll, we'll see each other, you know, we'll be arriving more or less the same time in Grenada. So I phoned the highway patrol and said, I have to get word to my father and grandmother about what has happened. And they said, we're very sorry, but we are no longer allowed to stop a car with any information like that because this was so misused that we are now forbidden to do this. We can't let them know. I said, well, that means they're going to arrive at my grandfather's place with no knowledge or else they're going to pick it up on the radio because it was all over the radio. This at that time was the worst airline accident in the civilian aviation history. 35 people, now it seems very small. So I phoned my grandfather, my mother's father. I tried to break it gently to him. I said, there has been an accident and it involves Dorothy. 
I'm sorry to have to tell you over the telephone. And he said, well, how bad is it? And I said, it's very bad. She's dead. So I said, please try to break it a little gently to them. Don't spring it on them as the first that they arrived. Of course, he was so upset, he ran out saying, Frank, Luella, Dorothy's dead, Dorothy's dead. <laughs> this is a, mm. oh, dear. Anyway, they came home, and we all flew to Rome and went out to Elba. They thought they had recovered Mother's body. And Dad said, well, uh, the commandant of the port said, you have to go and identify the body. So Dad started to stand up, and I said, Dad, don't don't you go, don't you go. Bill and I will go. And Bill said, yes, we'll do it. And then on the way, surrounded by paparazzi, all these newspaper men were in our hair. And Bill said, we don't need to both go in. I'll go in, and if there's a question, I'll come out and tell you. And Dad had told us some signs to look for, the appendix scar and uh, a bridge in her mouth, you know, and other things. We knew the body would be very bloated and it would be hard to identify. And they opened the door of this stone building, and all of the paparazzi and my brother and everyone came out with their handkerchiefs over their noses, and they had to wait for the place to air out. And they went in, and Bill came back and said, no, it is not Mother. Her body was not recovered, and it never was recovered. We went back to the Hotel Massimo, where we were staying. We sat there feeling very down that we didn't even get Mother's body back, and suddenly I remembered. I said, Dad, do you remember the day I was a teenager? And Mother had taken some friends of Grandma's to the cemetery to visit her grave and say some prayers there, and she put them on the train. They were going to Wilmette, Chicago. And she came home and said, Oh, I hope when I die people don't make a memorial of my tomb of me and come and visit the grave in this way. And Dad laughed and said, well, Dorothy, how are we going to prevent them? And Mother said, well, I don't know. He said, well, what do you want us to do with your body? <laughs> and she said, you know, if I could choose, if I could choose, I would love to die and be buried at sea. And she added later to several other people that she repeated the same thing and said, if I could choose the sea, I would choose the Mediterranean, oh whose goodness. waves would lap eternally on the shores of the Holy Land. And that's what exactly what happened. She went down in the Mediterranean, and her body was not recovered. She was mm-hmm. buried at sea. Wow, what a story. Mm-hmm. So did your father end up going to Grenada regardless? Yes, yes. the next year he and, and Auntie Lou, my, my grandmother, went down to Grenada, and he bought a house there. And I have been down to Grenada many times. Hubert and Dodie and I, one of our favorite vacation places, when Dad and Auntie Lou were living, and after they died, they left the house to, to my brother and me, mm-hmm. and I bought Bill's share of the, of the property because he couldn't go. Mm-hmm. But years later, my brother was a, a research chemist for Abbott Laboratories, and he was in basic research, not in the product research, so that it was very interesting. He said, you know, I have my Ph.D., but to be on the very cutting edge these days, you have to have a medical degree and a Ph.D., and because of my service in the Army and then working in the bakery for years, I was 37 years old before I ever got my Ph.D. I've loved this work, but I've, I want to go to Latin America. I want to work with the indigenous people in the high mountain area of the Andes. And he went down to Peru and then later moved to Bolivia. Well, he went to this one area, which is 14,500 
feet above sea level, very cold, very, very cold. And he said, what are your problems? And they told him. And he said, but you've never mentioned this huge arroyo that's eating away your land, and every year when the heavy rains come, in the rainy season, more land falls into it, and it gets larger and larger. It's five kilometers long now, and it's eating up your land, and it's going to disappear. Isn't that a problem? They said, oh, that's an act of nature. There's nothing we can do about it. He said, well, your ancestors could. They built terraces and everything and protected the land. If they could, I don't see why you can't. And they said, we don't know how to do it. He said, well, I don't know how either, but I'm going to find out. So he learned how to build these small dry stone dams fairly close together. And as when the rainy seasons would come, the first year rocks would come in behind the dams. And the next year, the smaller rocks in the beginning of gravel. By the third year, it was gravel. By the fourth year, it was sand, and it was beginning to build up real earth. Well, I said, how many dams have you built? And he said, oh, they're going down that arroyo. We know it's well over 3,000 and probably closer to 5,000, but we don't really know because as the, the land fills in behind, the dams are covered, new land is built. He said we have almost three times as much arable land as, we, as they had to start with. And then he got his son. His youngest son was a doctor. As a doctor, Bobby would bring young people, two from each village, down to a, confer- a weekend conference. And these were young people who were semi-literate. They could sign their names. They could read a little bit. They could read labels. They had difficulty reading a book. I came in, and Bobby would teach them some aspect of health. The weekend that I observed it, he would start out with them playing games so that they would relax because they had never been out of their villages. These were all strangers to them. They knew Bill, and they knew Bobby, but they didn't know each other at all except whoever the other person was in their village. So they were very uptight and fearful. You know, they were not going to learn anything. They were so tense. Now they were ready to learn. And Bobby taught them about how to recognize chest congestion and and what to do about it and simple remedies they could help, you know, and what they needed to eat, how they could recognize anemia as the tongue is pale and the lips are pale and so on. And they went back with chart and how to treat them. Well, now Bill's grandson is doing this tutorial program to educate the village people. He's trying to give them complete high school education so that anybody in those villages who wants to go to university has the opportunity to get the educational preparation so that he can do it. So my father ended up in Grenada. My mother taught all through Latin America and indeed throughout the world. And my brother ended up in Bolivia Mm. teaching the people in the Altiplano. And he is still there. Now, what year did your father pass away? He died in 1963. My mother died in January 1954, and he died nine years later, nine and a half years later. Well, Louise, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. It was quite interesting. Well, thank you so much, Warren. I've enjoyed talking about it, recalling all these things. There's so much more I would like to tell you. I did much of the research for the book. It's called From Copper to Gold. It's published by the Baha'i Publishing Trust in this country, but you can buy it through any bookstore. And it's written by Dorothy Freeman Gilstrap. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Louise Mathias, daughter of the Baha'i historical figure Dorothy Baker. Her daughter, Dorothy Freeman Gilstrap, wrote the book From Copper to Gold, describing the life of Dorothy Baker. 
For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.